Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hi, everyone. I think you, most of you know me. I'm Tabitha. Um, hey, Dwayne. I've had the privilege of preaching here for about five years. Um, and I realize I've been preaching for 12 years in general, which is crazy. I know. Um, so let me recap. We have been doing the seven signs um, of Jesus, seven signposts to Jesus, um, which all can be found in the first half of the book of John. Um, and we are just coming to the end of this series. In fact, when you look at the signs, I think what you see is them ramping up. They start quite small. Jesus just turns some water into wine and it goes fairly unnoticed. He gets away with it. But they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He's like feeding thousands of people. Um, and he, his miracles are getting more and more extreme. And today we have the big one, the last of the seven signs. We have Jesus raises Lazarus. Yeah. But actually, I've been reading the first half of the book of John where these all happen. And I want to propose that between the stories of the seven signs, there's another story being told, the story within the story. And what that is, is the Pharisees and the non-believers of Jesus. They start out like, who is this guy? Then they start getting skeptical. They start interviewing the people that Jesus um, has healed, and then they just get downright angry. And just before, so at the end of the last sign from last week, which was um, Jesus healing a blind man, giving him sight, um, they get so angry that they pick up giant rocks and they're literally ready to kill Jesus right there on the spot. And Jesus has to flee for his life from Jerusalem. He flees to another part of the country. And that is where we begin our story today. Um, now, bear with me. I looked this up, okay. All the other seven signs, people had six to 12 verses to preach on. I have 44 verses to preach on today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I thought you might get a bit bored of my own voice, and I'm still a little bit croaky. Um, so I thought, who has the most attractive voice that you'd want to hear? And of course, I landed on my husband. Um, so Paul is going to bring us the word today. Morning, church. Um, you can follow on the screens on your Bible on your phones or your Bible that you have with you today. So strap yourselves in. This is a long one but I'll do my best to go through it and not send you to sleep. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the, of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not you, he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been, there for, been in there four days. 
Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The, man, the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Thank you, Paul. Beautifully read. So my first point today uh, is waiting. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I think my first point is probably the hardest point to address today. This verse suggests that Jesus knew what was happening, and yet he stayed two more days. And what's confusing about this verse, I find, is the way that it's phrased. It, it kind of almost sounds like this. It sounds like because he loved these guys, he stayed where he was for two more days, leaving them alone and in despair. Now, you might have noticed that version is Tabitha's naive interpretation. But that's how it came across. And, and when I get angry, when I get angered by verses in the Bible, I think, okay, I've got to do a bit more digging here. Maybe it's just this one translation. So I went to the amplified version of the Bible. This always fills in all of the gaps. Now, Jesus loved and was concerned about Martha and her sister and Lazarus and considered them dear friends. So... Even when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed in the same place two more days. Now, they do give us a footnote and say, don't worry, guys, Jesus knew what he was doing. But I just wanted to check one more time because this is a hard verse. So I went back to the original. I went to the King James Version, which is the first version ever to be translated. It's going to be the closest in English probably, hopefully, who knows, to the original. And that says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. I mean, are we all thinking the same thing here? Because he loved them, he left them for two days to be in despair. That really hurts. As someone who's experienced despair, that, that, that hurts. Why, why would you do that, Jesus? We're always saying to people who are in trouble, well, you know, what would Jesus do in this moment? Well, apparently Jesus would just leave you alone for two days. So as I said, when I'm angry, I need to dig a little bit deeper and I need to start looking for clues. I absolutely loved that a couple of weeks ago, Josie used a map to... Um, explain the story in her sermon. It really helped me understand the story in a whole new way. So I've got a map here. Um, and as the passage described, it was in Jerusalem where Jesus performed his previous miracles. When he fled from Jerusalem, he actually went to kind of just above where that orange circle is, all the way on the other side to the other side of the river. And we can he see here that Lazarus's home in Bethany 
is right next to Jerusalem. In fact, I got a bit carried away on Google Maps, and it's literally just down the road from the Mount of Olives. And so, understandably so, the dialogue in that chunk of dialogue from verses 6 to 16, if you have your Bibles, have a look. The disciples are really scared, and they're saying, don't go back there. You can't go back there. Um, And do you know what? They weren't wrong to be scared. If you flick a page in your Bible to John 12, it actually says, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus as well, for it was because of him that many people had deserted him and believed in Jesus. So it's, it's understandable that the disciples are like, seriously, you cannot go back there. They will kill you. Um, and Jesus, I don't think he comes across as scared. He actually comes across as very calm of like, nope, I'm decided. I know what I'm doing. There's a bigger plan afoot. And the thing is about the book of John is it's written like poetry. The whole thing is so thought out. So as I said, this, this um, series we've been doing is in the first half of the book of John. And we know that there's seven signs, right? And seven is the number of perfection. But there's also seven times within this first half where Jesus simply says, I am. And there's also seven times in this first half where Jesus makes an I am statement, like I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. It's all written so precisely like poetry. And I think I say this because I think Jesus had a real perspective over all he needed to achieve and all that needed to happen before the second half of the book of John, which the whole second half is devoted to his journey to the cross, him dying and rising again. He knew what needed to happen and he knew that his time was limited. This is the most important sign he had left to reveal, his resurrection power. And he needed to show this, not just to show that he could do it once, but to show that he could, it is through him, his resurrection power, that he can bring us all back. This is the sign for us to cling to. Not just that he can bring himself back, which we'll see later on, but for the, this is for the whole sake of mankind seeing and believing. But did it cost him dearly to wait for those two days, to leave his friends? I actually think it did. I think it cost him emotionally, and I'm going to get to that in my second point. Although Jesus' actions in our lives may sometimes feel disappointing, not giving us what we think we need when we need it, He nevertheless resolves our greatest need by overcoming death because it was only through him that Jesus was, through this, that Jesus was revealed as the divine author over all resurrection through whom we are assured of eternal life. But isn't it hard, the bit in where you're waiting for two days? That's the hard bit. I, um, actually many years ago, to be honest, I read uh, this book. It's a daily devotional for a year by Oswald Chambers. Um, I think he wrote it in 1924. If you ever want to be excruciatingly challenged every day of the year, I really recommend it. Um, I don't think I ever got through the whole year, to be honest. Um, 
But he does comment on this specific passage. He says, has God trusted you with silence, a silence that is big with meaning? God's silences are his answers. Think of those days of absolute silence in the home at Bethany. Is there anything analogous to those days in your life? Can God trust you like that? Or are you still asking for a visible answer? God will give you the blessings you ask if you will not go any further without them. But his silence is the sign that he is bringing you into a marvelous understanding of himself. Are you mourning before God because he has not had an audible response? You will find that God has trusted you in the most intimate way possible with an absolute silence, not of despair, but of pleasure because he saw that you could stand a bigger revelation. If God has given you silence, praise him. He is bringing you into the great run of his purpose. I told you he was challenging. He's expecting you to praise him <laughs> when you don't hear from him. He's expecting you to praise God in the times when he feels absent and feel, count yourself blessed. So if I was to put myself in the shoes of Mary and Martha, that feeling of being abandoned, that's not actually that hard for me to do right now. These last few months, I can really relate to what they were feeling. But what I can relate to is, in that time, it's so easy to stoke the fire of anger and to say, why? A few weeks ago, I promised myself, right, I'm going to walk to church and I'm going to pray the whole time. And what started off as a, a walk turned into an angry conversation. And by the time I got 20 minutes in, I was just in an angry rage. And I was like, oh no, I've only got five minutes left and what have I done? And what I'll say is, it's so easy to stoke the fire of anger. But it's already burning so bright, you don't need to stoke it. But you know what is hard? Stoke the other fire. There's two fires in us, and to stoke the other fire of hope. Not just hope in whatever situation you're in, but hope in Jesus, in his character, in his greater perspective, in his resurrection when all seems lost. It's really interesting that in this story, Martha is the one who gets it right. Did you notice that? We all remember the story of Mary and Martha, and Martha being the one obsessed with housework, and Mary wanting to sit at the feet of Jesus. But it's in this story that Martha is the one who says, yes, Jesus, I believe in your resurrection power. And it's Mary who is full of despair, saying, where were you? You could have healed my brother. And my point isn't to point fingers between these two sisters, but it's, it's to say that perhaps these two sisters represent the conflicting feelings in all of us, that feeling of anger and the feeling um, of, yes, I believe in Jesus. 
and we all have hard times and we're all probably gonna feel both of those feelings at some point. And it's okay to feel both. It's okay to have both responses at once. But which fire are you gonna stoke? Are you gonna stoke the angry fire and just find yourself getting more and more angry and bitter? Or are you gonna stoke the, the fire of hope? The fire of, of Jesus, of what he can do, of him knowing the bigger plan, of him pulling through for us in a way that only he can. No one else can fix our problems. Okay, second point, Josh. <laughs> Sitting, thank you, my nose is running. Thank you, <laughs> just announced that to the church. Okay, I actually realize in hindsight, I probably should have called this point weeping. Um, <laughs> but you get my point, Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Many of you already know that. And um, it's also one of the most famous verses. Because it's the most telling of Jesus and his human nature. We all know that he's God incarnate. But this really shows us Jesus, the human as well. And not only a human, but a human with great compassion for the people that he came to save. And so by understanding that Jesus really grieved, that he really felt the sorrow, that he really felt, he got down low with us and he felt the loss, it gives us permission to, be, to grieve too, to be sad too. Even if it's a friend who dies, who's a Christian, and we know they've gone to heaven, which is what had happened in this situation, it says it's okay for those of us who have been left behind to be sad about it. It's okay that there's tears. There's allowed to be tears. But Jesus really understands because he's there with us. He gets down low with us. Some Christians will tell you Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, just be happy. Just, you know, they almost believe that sadness is sinful and wrong and, and they fill themselves with this fake joy in the moments when actually maybe they should be grieving, maybe they should be sad. Some Christians don't allow themselves the sadness out of a, a kind of misplaced pride. But the fact that Jesus was willing to cry demonstrates that misplaced pride of is not the appropriate response. I think the idea that joy is the most correct human emotion to have is like often the case, like, you know, it's all our worship music is always so joyful, although Joel, you did a great job today. And not in history, you're right to shake your head. But the idea that it's the most correct emotion, it reminds me um, of the movie Inside Out. Have you guys seen it? I love this movie, it's absolutely brilliant. And most of you will know, you know, it's the story of an 11-year-old girl who grew up in the Midwest, had a great life, and then her parents decide that they're moving to San Francisco. And it turns her whole life upside down. And what's cool about the movie is you get to see all the different emotions and how they operate inside her brain, and you get to see all her memories and everything. 
And what I found really relatable about this movie is that um, in this girl's brain, it's Joy, who's the one in the middle running the show. She is the one to, like, take charge. And you can see all the memories in the background. They're nearly all joyful. She has it all under control. But, of course, this girl's going through a hard time, and sadness has this impulse to make things sad and to go back to her old memories even, the ones that have been stored as joyful memories, and make them sad. And when I was watching this, I just related so much to joy, like, sadness, what are you doing? Like, no, I worked hard on them. They're joyful memories. Like, you know, and I, I actually was on this journey with the character of joy, like getting so angry at the character of sadness for turning all the girls' memories blue. But in the end, we learn that it's sadness's impulses. They need to be allowed. They need, sadness needs to be allowed to be let in for the real healing to begin. It's a bit like a mini death. You have to die first before God can do the miracle, just like with Lazarus. And it's the same. Jesus needed to feel the compassion. He needed to really feel that sadness. He needed to get down into the pit with Mary and Martha to feel all the human sadness before being able to have that compassion to rise again with Lazarus. How many of us put off grieving? We say it doesn't matter, it's all going to be fine. God's, I know God's got this. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to heaven. God's got it, it's fine. I don't need to think about it. And what we're doing is where this pit is, we're just walking round and round the top of it going, Bible says rejoice, right? This is fine. And I actually got so convicted. I wrote this sermon, and then this morning, uh, during the prayer time, Chris said, actually, we're going to minister to the leaders, and we're going to have five minutes of ministry time. And I was like, no, I don't want that. I'm going to cry. And then I realized I'm literally doing what the sermon says. I don't want to get down into the pit. But Jesus got down into the pit, even though he knew what was coming. And the reason why it's so important is what Jesus really wants from us is authenticity. He wants real relationship. He doesn't want this fake circling above the pit. He wants honesty. He wants us to go down into the pit so that we must rely on Jesus coming down to rescue us. Because if we insist on circling around the top of the pit, we're not actually providing Jesus with the opportunity to be God in our life. Dare I say, sadness is maybe sometimes a particularly hard emotion for men. And I don't say that to point fingers. I think society has really screwed you over. They've taught you that anger is the only acceptable negative emotion. And that can have so many problems on the world. But that's terrible. And I, I don't even know why I'm bringing this up other than I felt prompted to, to say, I'm so sorry that society has treated you that way. I'm so sorry that it's harder for you to feel sadness. Because you don't have to be strong all the time. Here we have an example of the most powerful man to ever walk the planet. And he's not afraid to cry. And I think as we all move towards becoming more like Jesus, we can make that our aim. I've had 
a friend, a, a good friend in London for 14 years, and I've checked, I've got permission to share this story. 10 years ago, he went through a really bad breakup. And, uh, you know, I was checking in on him, and he was like, no, no, I'm fine. Uh, no, actually, life's good. This is great. Like, this is the, the best thing that could have happened to me. And I, I have to say, I was skeptical. I was like, yeah, you're, you're not being honest with yourself here. But for the last 10 years, we've both been pushing into our relationship with Jesus. I like to think we've both grown a lot. And recently, he reached out to me to say that life is hard right now. And could Paul and I pray for his situation? Could we pray for blessing over his family? And you know what? I knew that he was going to be okay because he was being authentic, not just with me, but with God. He was bringing his problems to the Lord and asking for Jesus to step in and help. So I had all the hope in the world for that situation. It's so good to look back with friends and see our growth. It's so good to acknowledge that it's okay to be sad. Jesus wept. There's no shame about that. We actually need to sit with these feelings before we can move forward. So my third point, rising. This is the good bit, guys. We made it. Thank God. Woo, so... The bit where Jesus does his Jesus thing. He says a prayer. He thanks the Lord. He shouts, Lazarus, come out. And out he comes, still wearing the grave clothes. This is the miracle. This is Jesus being Jesus, doing what Jesus does, bringing new life in the most incredible way. And what's important is it's not just that he did this 2,000 years ago. It's also that he's going to do this at the end of the world. We all get to rise again. But it's not even just that he's going to do it at the end. Not that he did it, not that he's going to do it, but that he does this every single day. This is the power of Jesus. I've got a confession to make. I started this sermon by showing off about how much I've preached. But actually, I'm a terrible Christian because the idea of heaven after death I find so hard to believe. And Joel read the good bit from Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, it doesn't help. Like, it's so crazy. I find it really hard to believe. But there is one thing that helps me, and it's um, not a Bible parable, but it is a parable of sorts. It's about two babies in the womb. You may have noticed, I might be thinking a lot about babies in the womb right now, but thankfully I only have one. So, a parable of life after delivery. In a mother's womb were two babies. One asked the other, do you believe in life after delivery? The other replied, why, of course. There has to be something after delivery. Maybe we are here to prepare ourselves for what we will be later. Nonsense, said the first. There's no life after delivery. What kind of life would that be? The second said, I don't know, but maybe there'll be more light than here. Maybe we will walk with our legs or eat from our mouths. Maybe we will have other senses that we can't even understand now. The first replied, nonsense. And moreover, if there is life, then why has no one ever come back from there to tell us? 
delivery is the end of life. And the after delivery, there is nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion. It takes us nowhere. Well, I don't know, said the second. But certainly we will meet mother and she will take care of us. The first replied, mother, you actually believe in mother. If mother exists, then where is she now? The second said, she's all around us. We are surrounded by her. We are of her. It is in her that we live. Without her, this world would not and could not exist. Said the first, well, I don't see her, so it's only logical that she doesn't exist. To which the second replied, sometimes when you're in the silence and you focus and you really listen, you can perceive her presence and you can hear her loving voice calling down from above. This parable of sorts is what gives me faith that there's more to come. Thank God there is. And I think my Christian experience throughout my whole life has actually been a series of letting things die and trusting God that he will raise it back to life again better. If you think about it, the very first day you're ever born, at the very beginning, in a sense, it's a little death. You're Every thing about life that you've ever known before in the womb is over. It's messy. It's crying. It's not at all what the babies were imagining it would be. And then maybe the next big moment in your life is when you give your life to Jesus. And again, it feels like a little death. You die to all of who you were before that day. And you're still the same person, but you're different just like Lazarus was probably the same person but different. Just as Jesus, when he came back, they say he looked different. He was him, but he was different. And again, on that day where you give your life to Jesus for the first time, it's probably messy, there's probably crying, and it's probably not what you expected. I think for me, the next step in my timeline, um, the, big, the next kind of big little death, if that makes sense, was the death of a four-year relationship I had. Uh, from the age of like 16 to 20. And both me and my boyfriend at the time felt that God was asking us to give up this relationship. And we were so sure that if we gave it up, if we gave it to God, then he was going to resurrect it and bring it back better. Um, Thankfully, God didn't do that because God's plans are better than my plans. But I did let go of it entirely. And what God did resurrect in a whole new way was my faith. My faith was catapulted from that day. And I am not the person I was before then. God has better, bigger plans than our tiny human perspective can plan out. We can say, yeah, if I give this to God, he might fix it in this exact way. But he's not going to do that. He's going to fix it in his way with his massive perspective when we think about his perspective over the book of John. To die to yourself is to really give Jesus the reins, to hand them over and let him change something significantly. And I know I've got more deaths ahead of me. I know that I've only got a few months left where I just really have to care about myself. (laughs) Life's going to change a lot when motherhood begins. And I'm okay with that because I know that with each death comes a better life. I can't tell you 
how hard the time before you experience the resurrection is. I'm sure you've all experienced it. But there is one Bible verse that really helps me, and it's actually amazing. This first yellow patch here is the story of Lazarus. The second yellow patch is the, the verse I'm about to read. It happens just one verse over. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the times when you're experiencing the death and you're standing in the gap before resurrection, I have clung to this verse. I am clinging to this verse now. So as the band come up, I think there might be three things to think about or maybe one of these three things might have spoken to you today. Maybe you're mourning before God because he hasn't showed up. Maybe you're feeling like Mary and Martha and Bethany waiting. And, and it's okay. Come to the front, get prayer. And just think of Oswald Chambers. This is... You'll find that God has trusted you in the most intimate way with silence, not of despair, but of pleasure. He saw that you could stand a bigger revelation. Or perhaps it was the verse Jesus wept that might have spoken to you today to give you permission to mourn, permission that I needed myself today to climb into the pit, to wait for Jesus to rescue me. And this is a time to really dig in and mourn, but also to lift your eyes up and wait for him. You can go into the pit, but let's not make our bed there and say, I live here now. Instead, we keep looking up for Jesus to come and be the rescuer. Or perhaps that final bit about the mini death in order for new life to come. Perhaps there's something to let go of now. That perhaps there's something in your life that Jesus is putting his finger on, saying, come on, if you give this up, I'll give you something so much better. To let some part of your old life die in order for Jesus to do his miracle so he can bring something better. It will be unknown, but it will be better. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.